You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Sauron, the Dark Lord, has assembled Tron, and the rest of us are completely effed. We take a hard look at the state of modern after Pro Tour Barcelona on the eve of the BNR. Plus a first look at Wilds of Eldraine. That's all coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan, and I'm joined today by a very special guest. You know him as Zanman, it's Lawson Zandy. Lawson, welcome back. Hello, hello. Another big weekend of magic and another time for me to say hello to the people. I do like how we have you on standby. Uh, you've become our tournament expert, tournament corner coverage man. I don't know how that happened. Hey, my, my dad used to write, uh, you know, articles, you know, reviewing magic tournaments. So I, I definitely am chronically online and will not let a magic tournament slip by me. So it does run in your blood. You're the youngest old soul in magic. Um, I think that's fair to say. So we got a lot to talk about. You know, I would thought today we would just cover the events from last weekend where we had the modern pro tour. But you pointed out that there's a lot more going on, right? It's not just what happened last week, but what's coming next week. So a few days from now, Gen Con is happening, and that's Magic's actual 30th anniversary. So we're probably a day or two away from another big swath of announcements. They've said they're going to look three years into Magic's future. And then next week is the yearly, oh, I hate to say that, the yearly Band of Restricted update. So we got more news coming down the horizon. We do, in fact. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, they, we also have some new preview cards. Um, during the Pro Tour weekend, they showed off some of the goodies from Wilds of Eldraine. And of course, we will dig into all of the delicious tournament results. So that's the plan of attack. Before we dive into all that, we do need to do a little bit of housekeeping, which is to shout out our newest patrons, and we got a bunch of them, so we'd like to give a big welcome to Brody P, Trenton R, Dorklord23, Gyro Z, Joe F, and Simon G, who's gone up a tier in their pledge. So thank you very, very much to all of those individuals. And just a reminder that if you enjoy the show, if you like what we do here at Faithless Brewing, the best way to show us some support is by going to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. You can sign up, make a pledge at any tier you're comfortable with. That gets you immediate access to our wonderful Discord community, as well as other perks. You know, from time to time, we vote on cards. We have monthly projects. Uh, you can send in deck lists, which we will review on air. Uh, we even have merch if you want to represent for the Faithless family with a sweet playmat. Uh, you can find all that at the Patreon as well. All right, Lawson, enough chit-chat. Let's get into it. Where do you want to start? Um. Well... I definitely think the easiest piece of magic news from this past week is the one ring, even though there were 
about 500 of them in Barcelona. The one one ring um, was purchased by uh, the one, the only Post Malone Magic's uh, biggest Magic Dork fan for a cool $2.6 million. So, uh, you know, he is now the owner of the most expensive piece of cardboard. And uh, yeah, that is that is a super cool thing. Uh, It's always fun to, you know, see magic uh, make its way into normal people news. I had people in my office, you know, ask me if I had, you know, seen the one ring. And uh, I had uh, it is always funny when people who are outside the sphere, you know, get a glimpse. So I think that is the the easiest piece of magic's news uh, today and this week. Other than that, I think the, you know, real place to attack is, you know, we had some of the best Magic players in the world meet in Barcelona, play a little bit of Lord of the Rings draft, but, you know, play 10 rounds of constructed modern Magic against each other. Um, Where do you want to attack that? Well, there's plenty to say about that, but you can't just skip the one ring, Lawson. Come on. (laughs) So I got to know, what did you tell your coworkers when they asked you this question? I said that I am so happy that magic can be fun and interesting for many different people, but I am not interested in, uh, you know, seeing what the price for that looks like five years down the road. So happy for Post Malone, but not uh, not interested in exploring it and, you know, keeping up with it any more than that. So a little video was posted. Um, Brooke Trafton, this is the person who found the one ring was briefly the ring bearer until much like Frodo Baggins, he sold the ring to someone else. <laughs> 2.6, that's reported selling price. It's a touching story. Really heartwarming story. By all accounts, Brooke Trafton's great guy. This is all hearsay, of course, but no reason to discount it. I feel like this could have gone any number of different ways. Like, I think Wizards got kind of lucky that they got a heartwarming story out of this. Like, imagine if it had been opened by... Dan Bach or something, just like an actual goblin, like a, like a golem creature. <laughs> the, <laughs> the ring ends up in the most unlikely of hands. Or it just sits unopened in somebody's, you know, speculative collection. I'm just not so sure that we're drawing the right lessons from this. Yeah, I, I am a little scared that a wizard gets a PRW. You know, I, I think that Wizards has done a lot of not great things recently. Something, something selling booster packs of proxies for $250 and, you know, all of the other things that uh, we have complained in them uh, or at them, I should say, on Magic Twitter for, you know, 10 or so years. But I am happy to see, you know, a, a good moment happen. I hope that they don't, you know, think of another thing like this to do at least anytime immediately. But, you know, all is well that ends well, you know? Don't get your hopes up, Lawson. I'm sure they've already got the next few one-of-ones planned out. They're not up. They're down. They're always down with Wizards. But, you know, I'll, I'll keep playing their, you know, cardboard game, so. I also don't think that we should just let Post Malone off the hook, right? Like, yeah, he gets to be the, the purchaser who changes this fellow's life and pays him $2.6 million. Great feel-good story. But this is not the end of the story, right? If, this, if the car just sits in Post Malone's vault somewhere, that's not a very compelling story to me. So my message to you, Posty, is the ball's in your court. Like, what are you going to do now that you're the ring bearer? How are you going to use your powers? Are you just going to sit on the card? Are you going to leave it slabbed? Are you going to go to a volcano? Because you know, people have been joking about that, but most people don't have the wherewithal or the resources to charter a helicopter and get some Sherpas and go to an actual volcano. Posty, you could actually do it. 
So I, I would like to see what happens next. I'd like to see the next chapter in the story of the one of one. Live concert in Hawaii, wears it around his uh, neck on a chain and then ends the concert by throwing it in the volcano. I'm in. I'm in for it, you know? Great TikTok, to say the least. I mean, if Taylor Swift can like swim underneath the stage at her concerts, I don't see why Posty can't have a volcano at his concert. <laughs> it's not that difficult. <laughs> All right. I guess, Lawson, you want to talk about actual magic news, like tournaments and stuff. Yeah, I think I think I want to talk about the not that one ring, but the 450 one rings registered in Barcelona. And that is not a typo. Uh, 450 copies of the one ring were registered in the modern tournament. For those of you all that don't know, that is the most copies of any card registered at that magic tournament. And. In my memory, it might be the most copies of a card ever printed or ever um, represented at a pro tour sized event. Hmm. Just for, you know, um, you know, perspective, there are only about 250 players at this tournament. So if they all shared their one rings equally, that means everyone gets to play about two. But that's not the way it played out. It means most players you know, played zero, but the other 40% played about four copies. Uh, 35 of which were in sideboards. Uh, but remember, that is also because um, there were a bunch of people playing Karn the Great Creator. So even the ones in the sideboard weren't actually sideboard cards. Those were uh, 4x copies in the main deck with Karn the Great Creator. So, you know, uh, we, we saw a lot of the wondering for uh, whatever of a flavor fail that is for you. So the 35 sideboard copies actually represents 35 players who wanted seven copies of the one ring. That is that is correct. So if if they could have had it their way, magic players might have represented about 700 ish copies of the one ring. So, you know, that's fun. (laughs) That's part of the storyline. The second part is Orcish Bowmasters hot on the heels of the one ring at 413 copies, 406 of those in the main deck. So these are the two most played cards in Modern right now. The One Ring and Orcish Bowmasters. We got the stats here. I'll go through the rest of the top 10. In third place, Fury. Followed by Chalice of the Void, Misty Rainforest, Thought Seas, Force of Negation, Boseju Who Endures, and Swamp. Is that the top 10? Like Endurance, that's number 10. Mm-hmm. Endurance in 10, and we can just go down to top 20. That's what they gave us here. Subtlety, Ragavan, Grief. Leyline Binding, Flooded Strand, Lightning Bolt, Island, Island holding it down, <laughs> Bloodstained Mire, Lorien Revealed, and Polluted Delta. That's your top 20 most played modern cards. Lawson, what do you make of this format? Well, I will say I don't like the fact that seven, I think, of the uh, 20 most played cards are lands. And I believe eight or nine of them are cards from non-standard uh, ever-legal sets, making the only cards that are castable and uh, in the top 20 most played cards in modern right now, Chalice of the Void, mostly as a sideboard card to try to stop the Cascade decks. Uh, mm-hmm. Thoughtseize, a super reliable interactive piece, Leyline Binding, and Lightning Bolt. Those are the four castable cards that have ever been printed into standard sets that 
saw notable play at the Pro Tour, which is a little alarming for anyone that is going to claim that modern is the you know format in which cards get to live on forever. Because this looks a lot more like it is the format where cards that rotate out of standard get to die and never see a second life. So, you know, take it for what you will that there were as many cards on the, you know, elemental cycle that were in the top 20 as ever standard legal playable uh, castable spells. (laughs) So, you know, Solitude is the only one that did not make an appearance. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The classic modern cards. I mean, Leyline Binding was printed last year, so it's a pretty recent card. We're talking about Chalice of the Void, Lightning Bolt, and Thoughtseize. That's it. Everything else, if you owned a modern collection from the first 10 years of modern, uh, that's not so relevant these days. While we're on this subject, we got to ask you about Lorien Revealed. I love it. 19th most played card, 233 copies. So this is the blue member of the land cycling cycle. It's now like a three or four dollar common from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Unlike the rest of the cycle, it is a sorcery. So it's three blue blue draws three cards. Is that correct, Lawson? That is correct. As as the limited expert, uh yes, I've played tons of this card. It is a very powerful magic card, especially when you don't cast it, which I know sounds weird. But the the most important things to think about this card is it plays a lot like the modal double face cards did, Mm -hmm. um, where they are extra blue cards for your subtleties and force of negations and all of that. But they don't cause you to have to tap out now, and you can instead basically play your tap land at the end of your opponent's turn by cycling it if you don't need it and then playing it as your untapped land next turn, Um, making it a lot easier for... You know, I know we're going to talk about the blue-black control deck a little bit later on to, you know, hold up something like a spell pierce and turns one and two without having to go shields down. So it is just like a really kind of streamlined thing. Plus, if you ever hit a late game where you start grinding, you know, having your sixth land instead of being land number six, but actually just be, oh, cool, three extra cards is a giant benefit. So you know, it, it increases your ability to play around Blood Moon. It increases your um, blue count for um, pitch reasons. It also just increases your late game viability. It's got very little downside. It, it's doing a lot of things at almost no cost. So this is true for almost all of the cyclers. Actually, all five of the uh, basic land cyclers from Lord of the Rings did see play at this tournament. So... You know, these are cards that we will see more and more that these are, you know, not a question of if, but more when. So. Yeah, I think there's there's two comparisons that one might have made when these cards were first previewed. And I think I probably fell into this trap myself. Like when I saw Lorien Revealed, I compared it to the card Boon of the Wishgiver, which cycles for one colorless. And it's, it's just a slightly bigger effect. Six mana sorcery draws four. Cycling for a random card it's just a bad effect, right? Where you just don't know what it is. When you see it in your hand, all you know is that you have to spend a mana on this and you just can't really count on this. So it's almost like there's no comparison there. Even though they look so structurally similar, the fact that Lurian Revealed is always going to be a land means you can count it as a guaranteed part of the mana base. Mm-hmm. Now, the comparison to the MDFCs, which is the other place one would go, once you realize, oh, it's just a land, uh, why not just play 
like a cheaper effect, like a saloon division or something like that, or Jawari disruption. Well, it's not just that, you know, drawing three is more attractive, but that's just a bad land, right? A land that comes into play tapped and only taps for blue is just not a very good piece of your mana base. You don't want to have a land like that. Uh, Lorien revealed searches for any island, right? That's a basic land if you need it for a blood moon. Gets us a shock land. If you're if you're in no rush, it gets a triome. It gets whatever you want. And exactly like Lawson's saying, happening at instant speed means you're you're fully open to interact as much as you want. And mm-hmm. so it's just a major major upgrade uh, on all fronts. They also, and this is something that is not immediately apparent until you actually play with them, um, they play really well in multiple, you know? Sometimes what's bad about a, a card like this is that, you know, it's awkward if you have a tap land coming to play on turn two and turn three. It basically means you're playing two turns behind. But, you know, you can say go on turn two, hold up counter spell mana, and then if your opponent doesn't play something that you want to counter, you can just be like, okay, I'm going to island cycle both of these things away. I'm going to fix my mana base for the rest of the game. I don't have to ever worry about it again. And if I ever draw, you know, a Lorien revealed from here on out, I know, cool, this is three cards. So this is the kind of effect that if you were to tell me um, that this happens in, in limited all the time where, you know, if you have three or four of this card, the amount that you want to draw is just let me draw all of them. It doesn't matter. I will I will either have the necessary lands to play magic or I will have the necessary cards to play magic. And and that is a, a really, really good place to be, especially with, you know, so much uh, card disadvantage being produced by subtlety and force of negation to not lose the game on the spot in many cases. So. So you mentioned, Lawson, that all five members of the land cycling cycle saw play at the Pro Tour. What, what was the full landscape in terms of Lord of the Rings, Tales of Middle-Earth cards that made an impact? So the two biggest ones are definitely The One Ring and Orcish Bowmaster. Um, The One Ring is, I I think it's easy to say it at this point, it is the most powerful card that is seeing play in Magic, um, bar none. Um, It's The easiest way to think of it is it is a four mana time warp that also is Necropotence, um and that is really messed up uh those those two cards don't need to be (laughs) interacting with each other they don't need to be allowed at the same time to like really really powerful Uh, orcish bowmaster is just you know whatever we said about running six three or four years ago whenever it came out about you know this is the thing that invalidates creatures of size x um Bowmaster does it, but better and more aggressive and also is tutorable and you can reanimate it. And also being black means you can discard it to grief, which matters a lot. So yeah, Bowmaster just like kind of invalidates every single creature deck that exists. I don't think a person can justify playing humans ever in Magic if Orcish Bowmasters is legal in the format. And I think there are probably 15 decks in Magic's history that you know, just kind of fall under that banner of, yeah, you just can't register this deck because half of the cards in it just get slaughtered by this and you just die. Are you referring specifically to you can't play one toughness creatures or the combination of that plus gumming up the, the board with these bodies? Uh, both. So uh, Orcish Bowmaster, um, it will just like be in kind of difficult amount of card advantage in a lot of the creature matchups. It also, even if it doesn't kill a creature, it's just so much board tension in one single card 
it is raise the alarm that oftentimes is also terminate, you know, and, mm. you know, if if you got to play terminate in your Jun deck and it made two one ones randomly, you would just be like, OK, I'm I I'm in, you know, this is this is a great time. And that's before we talk about the fact that Bowmaster accidentally sometimes kills people who play the one ring or, oh, no, you played a Seasons Pyromancer because you like playing, you know, your Winota deck or whatever. Cool. Discard two cards, draw two cards. I'm going to kill both of your tokens you've just made. Also, I'm gonna, like the number of things that Bowmaster just kind of invalidates on its own without doing any extra work in your own deck building is insane. Hmm. And then the rest of the cards that saw play from um, the set were mostly you know, role players. So Lauren Revealed is fixing your mana base a little bit. It's letting you up your blue count. Delighted Halfling is a mana dork that doesn't die to Bowmaster. So it's the only playable mana dork in the format right now. Like, that's just kind of the way it is. If you have one toughness, you can't be played in the format. Because if I play, you know, against you and you thought sees me on turn one and you take my two drop and then I play Bird of Paradise and then you Bowmaster my Bird of Paradise, <laughs> go to the next game. I'm dead, you know, like... Meets back on the menu. <laughs> That's a nasty sequence. Yeah. Yeah. So you just, you can't afford to play these one drops right now. It's wild. Delighted Halfling almost cracked the top 20. 220 mm-hmm. copies were played. And it, that top 20 list that we read, um, Polluted Delta had 225 copies. That was the 20th most played card. So lots of copies of Delighted Halfling. I think it's fair to say that those four, Lorian Revealed, Halfling, Orcish Bowmasters and the One Ring. Those are the, the big modern staples mm. from this set. We can maybe include the next one here because 87 copies of Sauron's Ransom. I mean, that's a fair number of copies. Sure. It's, I mean, it is a great card for grindy control decks. For those of y'all that don't know Sauron's Ransom, it is kind of a funky magic card. It's a, a blue, black, and one instant. Um, you reveal the top four cards of your library to your opponent they put them into two piles, one of which is face up, one of which is face down. And then you get to choose one of those piles to take. Uh, you also get to tempt the ring for whatever that's worth. Almost nothing. But mostly this is a blue and black card, which is important because, you know, um, a couple of these control decks did play grief, but mostly just leaning into the fact that they are pitchable to subtlety. But it is a factor fiction that only costs three mana kind of effect. So usually it draws you exactly two cards. The way that this card plays out, because there is some amount of hidden and some amount of um, shown knowledge is pretty interesting. I do think it's a sweet card, but it is not much more different, I would say, than divination, but an instant um, for all intents and purposes. Now, they've never printed divination as an instant, so I'm happy that we have this one now. I mean, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound like the kind of card that I will be jamming four of into my control decks, but that's exactly what a lot of players did. Uh, Spoiler alert, they did not do well. So, um, (laughs) you know, I I think that it's a sweet card that is probably helpful, but um, my, my long and short of modern right now is you need to do something really powerful, really proactive, and nothing else. You know, grinding out card value... Um, just doesn't really matter if your opponent one rings you, you know, it's just like, it is so hard to beat that single card when it comes to card advantage. 
I think that makes sense. But just like getting very specific in here, we're kind of looking ahead to the Demir Control deck. They could have just played Archmage's Charm, right? It's not that much of a stretch on the mana base. Instead, they're playing four copies of Sauron's Ransom. If you had to pinpoint one reason why they made that specific choice, Sauron's Ransom over, say, Archimedes Charm, what would it be? Is it the fact that it sees more cards? Is it the fact that it's easier to cast? Is it the colors? Is it the fact that it doesn't actually draw cards so it avoids Bowmasters? Uh, so I, I do think you hit on a great one. Um, dodging draw cards is actually pretty important because it, it is kind of easy to die to Bowmasters if you accidentally let it, instead of being a 1-1 that makes a 1-1, instead be a 1-1 that makes a 3-3. Because at that point, you know, you now actually have to use a removal spell on this random amass token. And if you draw two cards with Archmage's Charm, but then have to use one of them to kill a creature that didn't really matter until a second ago, now we're down to a three-mana spell that drew you a card and is also tied up your mana. So... That is one big part of it. Um, I will also say when you're in a moment where you have to draw your kind of one of effect, being able to look at four is way better than being able to look at um, two. So Mm. I think those are really the two main reasons. Um, I don't think, you know, the one ring tempted or tempting the ring portion of it making, you know, uh, Shialdred have uh, Skulk. I don't think that matters even at all. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I do th- want to say, you know, for all the kind of, uh, backhanded compliments I'm going to give Sauron's Ransom, I think it's a phenomenal card. I love the way that it plays. I think it's super great having cards that give both players initiative and choice and all of that. And I'm super excited to see what it does in later modern formats. I just think that right now, if you cast three mana, you know, draw two cards, kind of. And then your opponent plays the one ring and it draws them 10 cards. Um, what are we doing? You know, like it's it's a little silly. And by the way, you know, a lot of these uh, black blue control decks also played for the one ring. So, you know, these people are not choosing Sauron's Ransom over the one ring. They're doing it in combination with because there's just no card that does card advantage like that card does card advantage. Hmm. All right, so those are the top five most played Lord of the Rings cards. Any others that you want to shout out? From We have a nice list here of the top 20 most played Lord of the Rings cards. Um, I will say I do think it's super funny that literally all of the mana cyclers um, got to see some sunshine. A lot of this is because Living End is still a deck and telling the Living End player, hey, you can trim six lands from your deck and add eight mana cyclers. Your mana will be way better. And by the way, one of them is a 6-4 elephant that gives things trample. Are you in? Like that, that is really messed up. I, I do I do love the fact that they got to kind of run away with literally getting to play all of these sweet things. I will say the kind of interesting card that people should kind of have on their mind um, cast into the fire. It's this kind of weird spell that deals with both the one ring and bowmaster. Red and one instant deal one damage to two targets or exile target artifact. Um, specifically, it says exile, so it does get rid of the one ring, so you can stop your opponent's infinite card value machine. And if your opponent just end of your turn plays Bowmaster and um, shoots you in the face, Cast into the Fire does cleanly kill both the 1-1 and the Amass token. So it is cute. 
that that card as kind of a playable sideboard card if you're willing to squint. You know, it, it's good against hammer. You know, all all of those things. But other than that, really nothing that playable from Modern Horizon. I mean, Lord of uh, the Rings. You know, um, so. <laughs> Yeah, not a huge presence for the Samwise combo deck, uh, unfortunately, although that one is sweet. We saw, you know, a few brave Yawgmoth players registered Elven Chorus in their sideboards. Um, some Hammer players put, you know, a single Forge anew in their decks. But yeah, not much going on here. Yeah, I, I can't imagine uh, putting Elven Chorus in your deck and try to explain to someone. Yeah, so it costs four mana, and as the game drags out, you get more and more card advantage. And they're like, <laughs> the One Ring. The One Ring? The... But no. it, this one is immune to cast into the fire, so... Mm, but the rest of your deck is not, and so you just die. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so those are the cards that people played. In terms of actual decks right we can look at the metagame share bit surprising to see well maybe this is not surprising the most played deck rectos scam or rectos evoke as they're calling it clocked in at 19.3 percent to me that's surprisingly high i feel like historically modern pro tours you don't see a deck get above 12 percent um 52 players decided that rectos scam was their deck of choice and if you look at their win rates (laughs) Uh, they made a good choice. They had a very high win rate. The most played deck clocked in at, I think, 54% win rate against the field. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people just drawing smart conclusions. I mean, by contrast, the second most played deck, Four Color Omneth, uh, 30 players registered this. That's 11.2% of the field. And they did horrible. They, they did just do did awful. Horribly. So what, what happened here, Lawson? How did these players get it so right or so wrong? So I think the biggest thing to kind of um, look at is that, you know, 19.3% of the format was on Rakdos Evoke. There's, you know, a handful of other decks that take up, you know, um, the like 8 to 12% of the metagame. But 20% of the field was singleton decks, you know, one to three people playing it. Those are the decks that Four Color Omnath traditionally does well against. You know, all of their cards say gain a card of advantage. They, you know, they they're just very powerful cards generically. Rakdos Evoke is a deck that, by its construction, plays very similarly to Jun decks of years past, in that it does a lot of hand interaction and. All of its cards are one-for-one removal spells for, you know, most of the cards that other people have. You know, it, it deals with creatures and non-creatures the same way. You discard it, you know. So it is kind of a bulletproof thing to bring, especially with how powerful of a start it can have. Wizards called this deck Black Red Evoke because it plays four of the um, Fury and four Grief and the Elementals package to reanimate them when you um, evoke them. But, you know, the, the common name for the deck is Scam for very much the reason of you lost the die roll, your opponent goes first, and their turn one play is Grief, Undying Malice, take your two spells that can interact with my Grief, win the game. Yeah. Many different scams could happen to you. That's the most common one is the grief scam. Mm-hmm. The fury scam could just beat you. Uh, a blood moon could just get you. Uh, the Dolthy Voidwalker could scam you out. I mean, there's a very 
hilarious game happened in the Pro Tour Finals where Dolphy Voidwalker just completely stole the game on turn three. Yeah. Um, you know, Ragavan could steal the game from you. Any number of scams could happen. It could be the Bowmaster scam. Like, mm-hmm. you're just innocently trying to play your one ring and draw some cards and suddenly Bowmaster comes down and you lost. None of these things are likely to happen. But at a certain point, like, that's just the plan of the deck. Something bad will happen to you. And yeah, you do kind of feel like you got scammed. So I, I've come around on the name. At first, I didn't like it, but I understand. Yeah, I mean, the the plan of the deck is to do something unfair and invalidate the game. Like, it is, it, it is like, modern, like, squeezed down to, like, its most organic, pure form, you know? Th- this is a deck that every time you beat someone with it, you're excited for them to walk over to their friends and be like, ugh, there's nothing I could have done. On turn mm. one, he put four power into play. I mulliganed because, of course, I drew six lands to start. He took literally the two only castable spells. I brought both of them in for my sideboard, but what does it matter, you know? And it's just like, yeah, man, this is the deck, you know? I am I am playing only good cards. Uh, every single card in my deck has a matchup that it just solos, just on its own, just ends the game, nothing matters, pick them up, get out of here. Which makes it beautiful. Um, conversely, the four color mid range soup, you know, hope to interact with things as they come to me, did really poorly because it is a modern deck that cannot have insane openers. You know, um, it it just doesn't have those kind of early turn one, two, and three power plays that Rakdos Scam does, and because of that, it kind of got slaughtered by decks that decided that it was going to go over the top. I think the the biggest thing to take away from this event is the resurgence, um, and I'm kind of scared to say the resurgence of, but Tron and big mana overall. Four of the eight decks in the top eight were uh, classified as big mana decks, three of which are Tron, one of which is Amulet Titan. And in a world of people going, the one ring, you can't hit me on turn four, go. Tron is the only deck that can respond to that with that's cool. Ulamog eat two of your lands, you know, that is just not a thing that these other kind of mid range decks can do. And all of the mid range decks that were at the tournament did pretty poorly, you know, uh, not, not just four color Omnath, but uh Golgari Yawgmoth kind of a mid range combo deck was also in the 45% range. Um, mm. you know, Esper Control, Jeskai Breach, Demir Control, these were also in the 45% range. If you weren't doing something powerful, straightforward, and didn't care where your opponent was, you lost. And just to put some numbers to what Lawson is saying, of the top six most played archetypes, so Recto Scam at 19.3%, Four Color Omnath at 11.2%, the next most played decks were Rhinos, that's Crashing Footfalls, at 108 Tron at 8.9%, Yogmoth 7.1%, Demir Control 5.9%. Those are the top six archetypes. Three of them did absolutely terrible, right? That's Omnath, Yogmoth, and Demir Control just got completely slaughtered. By contrast, Tron did great, Rhinos did great, and Rakdoscam did great. So it's almost just like some people got it very right and some people just really got it very, very wrong. If you go down to the next most played, there's Living End at 4.1%, Burn at 4.1%, Murktide 3.3%, Creativity at 3.0%, Jeskai Breach rounding it out at 26 and then of course The Field at 19.7%, so 20% random decks. 
yeah of those and the the back half of the top 10 i mean none of those really stood out either i think living end was under 50 percent. same for burn merc tied at 49 percent it seems like to, to get this tournament right you had to be playing something that goes way over the top mm-hmm. yeah um I, I joked with some buddies because um i helped a couple people do some prep for the pro tour the things that i was saying for if i was going to play a deck i was looking at tron myself it's just like if everyone is going to play this four mana artifact i want to play the four mana artifact a a turn sooner than them and also do something that's way better than just four mana if y'all are you know coming back into magic recently and you know think that tron is always tron and it is you know what it has been only the mana base and the way to, you know, get up to Tron is what it was from five years ago. Everything else is, you know, kind of changed. You know, Cityscape Leveler gives you, you know, a, a different top end than the deck used to have. The way the One Ring plays out in this deck is also just insane. Um, you know, this deck is now as almost as consistent as having 10 mana on turn four as it is seven mana on turn three. Because any game that you play the One Ring... You have three leftover mana left with your Tron established, which means you can play Expedition Map plus Sacket, which means you can play Chromatic Star plus Ancient Stirrings plus another star or Chromatic Star, um, Sylvan Scrying. Like there's there's a ton of different ways that you can find a second tower for turn four, as well as the Wondering will draw you three cards before you have to get to that point. So it is it is time walk plus ancestral recall for turn in tron's case four so it's very good at doing something big and crazy on turn four where it used to be doing something pretty powerful on turn three is it fair to say that tron makes use of the time walk effect of the one ring better than all other decks yes yes that that one turn protection it's not just blind you up frog it's like the next turn you're gonna untap and you're probably gonna have not just tron but 10 mana, like you're saying. Also. Mm-hmm. So you're you're going to totally clean up the board and take over the game on that turn. And it also not only does that the best, but um, one of the problems that the One Ring can have is cool. You like kind of time walk. Your opponent can still like build up their board and whatever. The way that it kind of plays out in Tron is if I play the One Ring on turn three and then I do something huge on turn four. That's kind of the last turn that your opponent might ever be able to do something because it's kind of reasonable in this deck to like, okay, turn five, I'll play a Worm Quail Engine. I'll draw three more cards off of my One Ring. By the way, I'll play a second One Ring. I get a whole nother time of not being targetable. I, you know what, I'll actually keep the first one. So it already has three counters. So I'll just draw four next turn. I have a card in the Great Crater in my hand. So if it's really dangerous, I'll just play it and I'll get another one from my uh, sideboard. Also, at any point, I can, you know, exile one in my graveyard somehow. Now I can just get it back with Karn the Great Creator again. Like, Tron is the deck that can kind of cycle the One Rings over and over again. So if you don't kill them the one turn that they're available, you just, like, might have to wait three or four turns for them to, you know, be be open for business. So it is uh, it is the deck that is best at playing the first One Ring and the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth. So, if you think the One Ring is a good magic card, you might want to play Tron. The fact that the One Ring gets more powerful in multiples is a bit of a flavor fail. Like, I don't know what to make of that. But yeah, Tron gets the most One Rings, which makes the card even better. 
You also get to play cards. You just casually shut off the opponent's one rings. Like if, if they were hoping to draw cards to get back into it, uh, they're not going to do that when you have Karn in play. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what it is. For some reason, whenever there's a modern Pro Tour, Tron just suddenly becomes good again. Like oh. it's, it's usually a non-factor for most of the time, but it's a pretty, pretty consistent pattern. I think the last three or four modern Pro Tours, like Tron just like happens to do, be very good the weekend of the Pro Tour. Mm. One more thing about Tron and the Wondering, and I promise I'll stop after that. Karn the Great Creator can give your Wondering legs, um, and it's indestructible. <laughs> so it can't be pushed. It doesn't die to the Oblivion Ring or uh, Oblivion Stone. One rings are eternal. You know, that's that's what I learned from K jewelers. So, you know, we are <laughs> we are out here battling. I was a little sad that Rakdos ended up winning the tournament. I had really wanted this event to end with plus one. My Karn on my one ring mm. kill you. That's that's how I wanted this event to end. Um, sadly, Black Red Mount Doom, you know, nonsense had to win it accidentally. So. This is like the, the modern equivalent of. Oko animating Black Lotus to attack and win the Vintage Championship. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Karn that. animating the One Ring. Yeah, a bit of disinformation getting put out by the Play MTG Twitter account. You know, they they were very proud of this tweet that pointed out that the Tron deck was playing like sixty five percent the same cards as you know Cedric Felix's Red Green Tron from twenty thirteen. Yeah, it's the same deck basically. It's the mana base. <laughs> exactly. So, well, there you go. Well, let's let's have that head to head. The 2013 Cedric Felix Phillips Tron <laughs> against the 2023 Tron. Who would win? I'm taking bets now. Um, yeah. So so Tron was a great choice. Similarly, Rhinos did a really really great showing. Rhinos is just a really powerful deck against specifically Scam, but also. It just like gets to play a bunch of very powerful cards individually. Plus, sometimes you spend three mana and put ten power into play. Um, and I've heard that's good. It's the only proactive deck in modern right now that legitimately gets to play counter magic. That was kind of its saving grace at the tournament was there are a bunch of people that are kind of relying on this four mana non-creature spell to drag them back into games. And uh, boy, howdy, is it is a bad time to cast a Wandering into a single blue island untapped or even no blue sources untapped with so many force of negations running around. You know, it's just like very easy to accidentally die from I thought I was going to get to fog this uh, turn away. What actually happened was my opponent countered my spell for free and then at the end of turn put eight more power into play. Oops, I'm dead. So. Rhino's very successful with this tournament. Similar win rate to Tron also put three copies in the top eight, uh, one of them in the hands of the great one, the German juggernaut Kai Bud, who, when explaining his deck, said that he likes modern because it's easy. You just spend three mana and get 10 power. Smart man. So congrats to him. I do have to say Kai definitely played what looked like the most modern game of magic ever played in a um, live setting in the middle. I think it was it was day one, like round six or seven. Um, his opponent is on black red scam. His opponent mulls the five, goes for a turn one uh, grief play, and Kai hasn't had a turn. So you know we we've seen this story before. Oh, except Kai has the blue elemental, and he counters his opponent's thing, and his opponent can't keep it on top, and he puts it on bottom, and his opponent turn two uh, evokes a fury into play with no creatures, but then 
Undying Malices it, and then it just has a 4-4 Double Striker. And uh, I believe Kai uh, dead gone and bounces the Fury back to his opponent's hand that has one land in play on turn three, no other cards, and the game is just over. And I was just like, this is riveting magic, y'all. This this is not Yu-Gi-Oh, I promise. These This is not two guys that brought hand traps with them, you know? Um, yeah, it was truly, <laughs> truly nonsensical magic in all the best ways. So is that what you had in mind when you said it's specifically great against Rakdos Evoke, the Rhinos versus Rakdos Scam matchup? So it's it's both the fact that it is a deck that gets to play subtlety. The other big benefit to playing the um, the Rhinos deck is you can get all the cards taken from the top or from your hand, but the fact that you play eight to sometimes ten copies of two four mm-hmm. fours for three mana mm-hmm. means that like you know you literally are never dead in a game. You can always just oh Charles Agent. I have three warm bodies in play, two rhinos, blocks, a grief with a counter on it. Um, effectively, um, it trades exactly with a fury with a counter on it. So it, it is just very hard to get punished when you play the rhinos deck. That is kind of why you play it. You know, it is it is the interactive deck that just has the highest power level of individual cards, you know, and that's that's kind of its power. Now, that being said, there were 355 copies of Chalice the Void running around, which is mm-hmm. a card that is very <laughs> scary. But, you know, at the end of the day, Force of Negation, or not Force of Negation, um, Force of the Naturalized one, the one that blows up um, artifacts and enchantments. Force of Vigor. Force of Vigor, thank you. Uh, it doesn't cost no mana, but uh, you do pay play it for no mana a lot of the times. So it gets around Chalice, solves all your problems, and uh, is a pretty powerful card. So... You know, it, it is a deck that will not change um, until, you know, Wizards makes a, a game action on it. So. So those are the big winners, uh, Rhinos, Tron and Rakdos Skim. The losers, I mean, the control decks, we talked about four color Omnath. We kind of been beating around the bush, this Demir control deck. Lawson, can you explain this deck to me? It was the sixth most played deck at the Pro Tour, which sounds crazy to say because this really was not an archetype until very recently. Yeah, so um, it is largely being held up on the backs of basically exactly uh, subtlety being a really, really good way to interact with um, the grief plan. And then the other cool thing that this deck does when it first came out, this deck kind of like single-handedly first when it jumped on the um, face um, of just being the deck that you play to slaughter um, uh, creativity. Just like it is a control deck. And also if your opponent goes, hey, I would like to turn my 1-1 dwarf into something. You're a control deck that just randomly has this Bowmaster card. You know, so like it is just playing kind of all of the most powerful cards in the format. Along with the fact that it is controlly. There is not much else to be said for it. I, I think that this is if you made me play a deck that interacts with people, this is the one that I would play because it gets to do some amount of nonsense by having um, subtleties in the deck and having um, force of negations. So you can kind of tap out, play your wondering and all of that, but also know that we're going to answer anything that gets played. And then just trying to end games with either Shialtred or Merktide Regent. But at the end of the day, like if you have this much interaction and are going to be drawing, you know, 
10 cards off of the one ring, which I know might sound very hyperbolic. Um, it only takes four turns to draw 10 cards with the one ring. The first turn you draw one, two, three, and four. On turns, uh, if you play one ring on turn four, on turn six, you've already drawn six cards. And if you're a control deck, you're probably going to win at that point. So you also don't really have to worry about killing yourself um, from drawing and having too many burden counters on the one ring. Um, this deck one can just play a second one ring to stop that problem. Uh, you can also just at any point play a Shialdred. And the moment you play mm-hmm. Shieldred, you just tap the one ring. Okay, I draw four cards and gain eight. Cool, we're fine. Like, uh, the, the one ring does not have a downside to it. That's just the true and simple of it. You know, l- losing life is not a big enough of a deterrence. I thought Wizards learned this 25 years ago with Necropotence. They did not. Also, by the way, we'll talk about this a little later. Uh, Necro is getting a reprint. Um, it will be in booster packs in our hands very soon. So, <laughs> yippee. Yeah, so that that's starting to make sense. Control as an archetype has been around forever, and it's been pretty bad in modern for a long time. And specifically a control where it's a kind of an incoherent mix of some counterspells, some removal, some card draw, and a win condition. Which really, that's all this Amir control deck is, right? There's 10 to 14 counterspells, so that's 4 force of negation, 4 counterspell, 2 drown in the lock, and 4 subtlety. Some removal, right? So there's 3 fatal push... Um, one Shaldra's Edict, and then I guess if you count the Bowmasters and Subtlety, those are also signal removal. Your win conditions are the two Murktide Regents, the two Shaldra's, four One Rings for card draw, four Lorien Revealed, four Sauron's Ransom. So it's all there. It's just like you're really relying on a few of these cards being super, super OP. Mm-hmm. Like the One Ring subsidizing eight free counterspells, I think makes a big difference. So mm-hmm. It makes it a lot more plausible to talk yourself into this deck. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, they got slaughtered at the tournament. <laughs> they did horribly. They just, Absolutely. I assume they just got Tron over and over again. So those are the control decks. I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts on Yawgmoth specifically? The fifth most played deck at 7.1% also just put up terrible results. Oh, I love the deck. Um, I think it's very underlooked when it comes to kind of competitively viable decks. One, uh, this deck is really, really awful um, in a world with Orcish Bowmasters running around. You might be saying to yourself, but wait, doesn't, um, you know, uh, what's it called? Yogmoth kill it. And while that is true, Yogmoth does give it minus one, minus one counters, and it will do all of that. It does also have the awkward problem of um one anytime that you have to target your opponent's creatures with um with yogmoth himself um does mean you might be ruining some of your loops you know one of the cool things about the deck is that it does have all these packages where you sack a young wolf take a counter off the other one go back and forth the way that state-based actions works is that even though there is a minus one minus one counter on that orcish bowmaster it will before having to do that you will have to draw a magic card. The Bowmaster will trigger to deal another one damage and a mass one. Even though this Bowmaster will die, we will get at least one more trigger out of it. So mm. um, it like is a really big pain on the deck because, you know, you can just leave one damage floating on one of these young wolves. And the moment that your opponent sacrifices one of the other ones to take the minus or the plus one plus one counter off of the other one, it will lose that counter but then we'll have one damage floating on it, die, come back, and not be able to reset the other one. So the deck just, just have these kind of problems where that can happen. 
as well, just like this deck does not actually play very good against the scam decks. One, you play a million creatures against a deck that is might double fury you and you can't ever beat that. Also, if they grief you on turn one and they take all of the cards in your hand that matter, because this deck is basically just a pile of mana dorks plus like eight to 12 cards that actually matter. Um, if they just take the cards that matter, you die. The rest of your deck is Young Wolf and Geist of St. Trap. You die. There's just there's not a not a whole lot else going on. Um, so th- this deck did fall kind of flat. I was kind of interested to see, you know, what was going to happen. It, it had checks a lot of boxes of things that I like, you know, combo that kills people. But at the end of the day, um, just a little too fragile with kind of what the entire rest of the format looked like. Also, its combo does rely on targeting the opponent, which the one ring does stop. So if your opponent just played the one ring on you, you can't like go for your combo because you just don't have it yet. So that is that is a bit of an issue. So I'm just looking at the win rate matrix uh, very nicely compiled for us by Frank Kirsten. Thank you, Frank. Thank you very much, Frank Kirsten. We see the outliers. You gotta give a shout out to the the lone Merfolk player holding it down at uh, eight and two, eighty percent win rate for Merfolk. Uh, Reanimator, one player brought that and went seven and three. Any hidden gems lurking at the top of this win rate? I see a hammer did pretty well. You know, among the t- two players who brought it, they went sixteen and seven. Uh, three, oh, players. three players. Sorry, three Sir. players. So almost seventy percent. Uh, a nice sixty nine percent win rate there for hammer. Titan would probably be the best performing of the decks played significant numbers. Uh, 57% win rate for the Titan players, including Dom Harvey uh, of Dominaria's Judgment. Mm-hmm. Made it to top eight, made it to the semifinals. Shout out to Dom. Uh, he's also, I've been told, a Faithless Brewing fan. So big congrats. He's been an Amulet Titan master since the beginning, really put that deck on the map um, in the modern era, in its current incarnation. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I do have to say Dom Harvey is, you know, the the goat when it comes to Amulet. It is, you know, th- there are a million different things going on in that deck. Um, I will also say, just like, you know, kind of the compliments that I was giving to the Tron deck about, you know, it it is a deck that can do some really powerful things um, with its extra turn with the One Ring. This deck can do some really crazy powerful things with the one ring. So I'm very happy to see that, you know, it is a deck that is happy to, you know, wait a turn and then, okay, cool. Just kill you. You know, like if your opponent ever has to go shields down for any reason, you just go, cool. I put two Titans into play. They both have haste, double strike and plus four plus. Oh, is that good enough? I think that's probably good enough, you know? Um, and that is just like, if you are going to play a deck that doesn't have a super low to the ga- uh, ground, proactive uh, strategy of doing something really powerful on turn one, two, and three, then turn four, five, and six have to just be, the game is over. We're done. We're not doing anything else. I'm killing you right now because everyone that's turn four, five, and six was, you know, trying to be a, a snake and constrict on their opponent and, you know, really shut the doors out. They lost because if you didn't draw the one ring and your opponent did, they outcard advantaged you and even though your deck might have a great matchup here you just can't beat someone that has literally two and three times as many resources as you it's just not how this game is uh, designed to be played so mm-hmm. so my question for you lawson is 
given these results, do you feel like there's there's a solution to this metagame, like a, a hidden way to attack it? Or conversely, just are there some cool hidden gems that you want to shout out from the field? Ooh. Um, there are a couple hidden gems that I did think were really, really cute additions. I think the, the cutest deck that got brought was a um, black-red uh, evoke deck uh, that had no mountains in it and no red cards. It was just mono-black grief. And its whole addition was that it got to be a, um, you know, a scam-esque deck, but it got to play Field of uh, Ruin and Demolition Field, which are really, really good against the kind of big mana strategies. That being said, uh, this deck did not do very well. I, I feel like, you know, um, the, the player that brought this, even though they had a, you know, kind of cool strategy, they, they brought... A, uh, graveyard Trespasser to an Ulamog uh, Ceaseless Hunger <laughs> world, you know? It's just two two very different, you know, lines of strategy. Outside of that, um, uh, Samuel Chang, if y'all don't know of him, he is a, a diehard um, blue-red player from years past, I believe. Brought, on purpose, three copies of Ye old Snapcaster Mage, Yes, <laughs> Snapcaster Mage. The man. Um, Snapcaster Mage is uh, a card that holds a very special place in my heart. It was comboed with Flame of Anor. Uh, Flame of Anor is what I'm going to call 2023 Archmage's Charm. Mm. Either deal five damage, draw two cards, or destroy an artifact. But if you have a wizard, which Snapcaster Mage very importantly is, you get to choose two of the three, which basically means... Kill target creature, draw two cards. And if you ever get to live the dream where you snap caster mage to play the flame of Anor, uh, I, I believe you win the match. I think that's how that interaction works. I think Wizards um, has a special policy for rule zero in that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to see people, you know, throw away their tickets so I don't have to playing red blue nonsense. So how do, how does Samuel Chang do? I have to know. Not great. Not 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 <laughs> phenomenal as of uh, what I heard. So, um, but I was I was happy to see someone sleeve up Snapcaster Mage. I mean, I I want to believe, but there's only three Snapcasters and there's four Flame of Anor. And there's four four the One Ring. I don't think that's a vote of confidence in Flame of Anor. I think it's just that it pitches to fury and subtlety and force negation, which the deck is also playing. I, I, I would be curious to know how often Samuel Chang actually cast Flame of Anor with or without a wizard in play. Because there's only three wizards. Mm -hmm. It's just the three Snapcasters. Um, I have seen some versions of this of uh, decks trying to do Flame of Anor nonsense. And this is for brewing minds out there. Uh, you can play Mutavolt in your control deck and just tap Mutavolt to animate itself because it is a wizard. Um, mm. So if anyone would like to play a colorless land in their red blue deck that is also sometimes a blood moon deck uh, feel free to do that i uh I, I, I i'm not claiming that it's smart but i am slaying it's sweet so that has to be worth something so you're saying with immutable in play i essentially get kicker one on my flame of anor oh yeah I get the extra mode for an extra mana it's super cryptic command with that extra mode i get to draw two extra cards which is exactly enough for them to play a bowmasters and kill my mutavolts <laughs> okay well well the, the more we explain this line the, the worse it gets cut the tape cut the tape do not let him cook i mean i love the the concept of flame of anora we had uh deck fate in 07 uh yosef Yushich on the show a couple weeks ago and he had this sweet like 
Ether Vile, Wizard Cycling, Flame of Anor deck with no spells besides that. It was just like a Taxus deck with wizards. It was very, very cool. I mean, um, you know, randomly, most Merfolk, their second creature type other than Fish Person mm-hmm. is Wizard. <laughs> um, so uh, the the a handful of the uh, Merfolk Brain Trust have tried Flames of Anor, and uh, they they've had they've had some results. I'm not saying, you know, that uh, fish is on the menu, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe some spicy redfish, you know, um, redfish, bluefish, okay. Dr. Seuss, all of that. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just saying, you know, don't 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 uh, knock until you try it. The only other deck that I do want to um, just note on is um, Naya Scapeshift. And this list comes straight out of my heart. Um, I, I love Scapeshift decks. They are actually the the first deck that I ever played to make a pro, uh, PTQ top eight in probably like 2006 or seven was uh, red green scapeshift in standard with primeval titan. Don't don't check how old that makes me. Um, but um, <laughs> this deck is playing Wish from Adventures of the Forgotten Realms. Two colorless and a red sorcery. You may play a card um, from outside the game um, this turn. And this is basically just a deck that has a bunch of one of targets for Wish and is trying to get to the point where it has seven lands in play so that you can go scapeshift into Valakut plus six um, mountains, which seven is the perfect number for uh, this deck because Wish plus uh, scapeshift costs exactly seven mana. So this deck effectively is playing seven copies of scapeshift to help it get to that point, it is playing uh, Lord of the Ring All-Stars as Reprieve and four of the One Rings. And this is another great One Ring deck because it's just time walking. If it plays a way to ramp on turn two and then a way to ramp on turn three, then it's turn four of, all right, the One Ring, you can't kill me this turn. And then turn five just goes, OK, I kill you. That's good enough. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love... I love the the deck construction of this. I, I think, you know, th- this is very much a modern deck, you know? Between four Ren and six and four the one ring, you're going to have plenty of cards or lands in your hand. So your four Dryad of the Elysian Grove, four Arboreal Grazer are going to get you your land drops mm. pretty much every time. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. The part that's a little tilting is, you know, it's a Valakut scapeshift deck, so everything should be a mountain. But as we've seen from creativity, that does not preclude you from playing Leyline Binding as your go-to removal spell. <laughs> it's totally fine for Leyline Binding, a domain mana base in my all-mountains mana base. Um, so that's that. And they're also playing four copies of Reprieve. Mm-hmm. A little, little remand action in white. Yeah, I mean, these decks used to splash a blue for Growth Spiral and Remand on purpose in 2021, you know? Um, you know... A couple of years later, we don't even have to play blue anymore. We can play counter magic that doesn't even counter things, which if you check reprieve, it doesn't say counter target spell. It just says return it to their hand. So it does get around cavernous souls nonsense. It gets around, you know, everything that says can't be countered. We're not countering your spell. We're just returning it to where it came from. And you can try again next turn, champ. Yeah, it gets around delighted halfling. That has was probably the most played version of that effect right now. People trying to play uncounterable one rings. Give it a reprieve. We'll talk about it next turn. 
All right, so not not a huge amount of spice. I think it, it's fair to say. We wouldn't really expect that either. It's a pro tour. People got to do their best to take their shot. Big shout out to uh, Jake Beardsley, who won the whole thing with Rakdos Scam, a player from Roanoke playing in his first pro tour. Uh, it's amazing to see. Great run. Big winners from the tournament, I guess we could say the big mana decks. Maybe the smooth brain decks, Tron, Rhinos, whatever this Cape Shift deck is, and Scam. Um, I don't know how you classify Amulet Titan, but yeah, we got to give a shout out to that deck as well. And the losers were everything else. Yeah, if, if you had to think about what your opponent was doing at the tournament, you were doing it wrong. Which, you know, I, I don't want to say makes Magic a simpler game, but hey, a lot of times at these really big events, uh, it's really easy to try and outplay your opponents. I, I do want to inform everyone, if you made it to this Pro Tour, you had to do some colossal things to get there. There are no scrubs here. Playing playing mm. a deck that tries to farm, I'm going to outplay my opponent when you might randomly get paired against Sam Black and LSV and Dom Harvey. And you're just like, oh, man, why can't I find any randos today? You're like, well, man, you're, they flew you to Barcelona to play wizard circle or squares, you know, like this isn't. There, there are no scrubs here. No, no one for TLC to, to make fun of. If you had to guess, would you say that's the mistake that the people who chose control, that's the mistake they made is that they they did well in testing because they were just playing against weaker players? Or did they misread the field? I, I think that Magic players, and this is something that I've been talking to a lot of people about when it comes to limited, I think a lot of people want to super over-evaluate their own play, um, chalk up mm. you know 25 to 30% of all their losses to just variance and when you when you do that, you make it very easy to make every deck look like a great choice. I think that most decks were probably a pretty bad choice. Now, that being said, most decks did not get brought to this tournament. Most of the decks that got brought were black, red, Tron, four color, you know, things that people think that they can do well with. But I think any deck that includes I have to, you know, know what my opponent's doing, you're just going to play yourself into a corner. Hmm. All right, Lawson. So I guess the big question then is modern, we are told, is a non-rotating format. So is is this a tenable situation? Like, can this metagame hold up or are we going to need to see some interventions? Specifically, we've got that banded restricted yearly announcement coming up. Uh, allegedly, it will only happen once a year except for emergencies. You're expecting to see any changes? Do you think there's any fix for this or is this just fine? Um, I don't think this is fine. I also don't have faith in wizards taking action. And I do think if they are going to take any action, they need to go kind of heavy um, and not gentle. If if it was up to me, I would I, I would be very serious on banning the one ring. It, it is a colorless card that is problematic in literally every deck it's printed in. You know, it is just not playing reasonably with the format. It, um, you know, a, a thing that Wizards has talked about is that, you know, anytime you print a card that is just a resource exchange of turn one given resource into another one, um, those are always things to be really careful of. Well, cards are the most important resource in Magic, and life is, in many ways, the least important resource. So, 
making a card advantage card that's downside is you might lose some life um, is just like we figured out 25 years ago that this was like not a reasonable way to try to balance this effect. You know, the the most reasonable that a card draw spell has ever been that tinkered with this kind of play space was black, 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 draw four cards, lose half of your life. And what players found at the time was if you're at 20 and it deals 10 points of damage to you, that's fine. You were at 20 and you got to draw four cards. You're probably winning. And oh, sometimes you play this card and you're at five and it dealt three points of damage to you. That's fine. You were almost dead anyways. There's literally never a bad time to draw four cards. Like, are you talking about Infernal Contract? Yes. Is that yes? Thank you for randomly knowing that <laughs> card. That is a card I was not expecting to, to get referenced in, in today's discussion. But just like <laughs> you really are an old soul, Lawson. My God, what a what a dig! Was that played in what Prosperous Bloom back in the day or something? I've got it right next to me. If you want me to redo the deck list, but yeah, no, like. Necro, a Yogmoss bargain, um, like all of these cards that are just, you know, trade one uh, resource for another and that other being cards, just like continually not uh, not being like a, a thing that you can balance, you know, because life has very different values depending on the format and stat uh, status of where we're at. Um, so I would I would ban the one ring. I'm willing to do that. They've already sold all of the Lord of the Rings packs they're going to sell. It's it's fine. Um, whatever. Like I, I think it's just important for the health of the format. I would also take a very serious look at changing the cascade mechanic again. Um, I don't think you can ever have another reasonable mid range deck exist in a format that both rhinos and living end um, live in. You know, it's just it is going to be hard to print a three mana um, value card that is anywhere reasonably close to. 10 power across three bodies is that it, like you know i i just don't know how wizards could ever print something that is close to that i'm glad you brought that up because i think people just assume that cascade just is what it is because people have been using violent outburst forever mm -hmm. but let us not forget they put charlotte's agent deliberately into the format in the last modern horizon set they did not have to do that mm -hmm. right that that was a choice and it turns out to have been i think a bad choice you did not have to power up Cascade in this way. Mm -hmm. I think the way to address Cascade without completely changing the Cascade rules, if that's what you're suggesting, Lawson, would just be to take away one of the pieces. I think Violent Outburst is clearly the most powerful of them. So mm. you could sacrifice that one and allow Cascade to survive with Ardent Plea and Charless Agent. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, was it really so necessary to just be so on the nose about pushing one archetype? Like, oh yeah, let's just make Cascade a little bit better. Well, okay. I mean, it's better now. Is that like, is that a good thing? <laughs> the the other reason why I'm like pretty okay with changing the just the way the mechanic works is they have already actually changed the cascade mechanic. You know, like you can no longer cascade into Valky. You know, like mm. Wizards has like proven before that like the way they designed the cards did not interact the way that they expected it to. And that it is problematic for the format's health. So we're going to, you know, from our, you know, castle, just say, actually, that's not how it works anymore. Like, if getting to play your zero mana spell off of Cascade, if you had to legitimately be able to cast that card regularly and you just can't, then I would be okay if that's just the way they change it. You know, um, Shardless Agent, 
I don't know if you've ever played this card, Dan, and not hit a spell that costs zero mana, but that was a legacy all-star for many years. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and it wasn't ever doing anything cheaty. It was trying to hit Nimble Mongoose and Deathrite Shaman (laughs) and Brainstorm. Like, it it was trying to hit efficient one-mana things and be one card of value, you know? Um, It was not trying to be oh, by the way, 10 power, you know, like that's just it, it doesn't have to be that it can be its own card and not have to live that life. I can see how a mechanical fix would make sense, but it would also just be a, a colossal admission of, of failure, right? Because it's not just that they introduced Charlotte's agent, but at the same time, they printed a whole new cycle of these no mana suspense spells. Like they're saying, oh, we think this is a really interesting interaction. So let's give you more of them to choose from and more cascade tools to do it with. And I think people are just over it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that interesting. It's not even challenging anymore to build your deck with these CMC restrictions because they can't help themselves from printing these cost reduction pitch cards. Mm-hmm. They're just never going to stop doing that. So at this at this point, like, what's the point of calling it a restriction that you can't have anything CMC one or two in the deck? Mm-hmm. Similarly, like the triomes have just been like a huge setback mm-hmm. for modern. Like they just they make any mana based considerations like not even a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you you see any changes happening on that front, or is that just a, a done deal? It's a permanent feature of modern now. Yeah, I think I think the triomes are going to be here forever. Um, I think my spicy take for things they could do to change the ban list, and this is the one that uh, might uh, get me yelled at on Twitter. But I would be okay if they banned the entire elemental cycle from MH2, um, mostly because I think they were not well thought out in how they were made. Um, I think they're perfectly designed magic cards if they literally just said, as this creature enters the battlefield, if it was cast, do this thing. Mm-hmm. Because like the problem of these cards keeps being, oh, well, yeah my opponent played solitude on me for zero mana and then they ephemerated it or they, you know, they did this other thing that actually, even though they had to sack it, it still was in play. Like, you know, anytime that the evoke portion of the card just doesn't matter. It's not the card that they intended it to be, you know? And for anyone that wants to take the, the claim that Wizards knew what they were doing when they printed the Evoke creatures into the format. They knew what it would be with uh, Undying Malice. I, I just would like them to tell me to my face that they think that Wizards thought about Undying Malice being a playable constructed magic card when it is literally almost an unplayable limited magic card. Like... I mean, you're going to have to take up that argument with Brad Nelson and Brian Brondewin and Sam Black, because they, they talked about this specifically when the cycle was first previewed and Grief was the first card of the cycle previewed. Mm-hmm. Everyone went nuts, like, oh, Grief Ephemerate, Grief Ephemerate. Oh, my God. Can you believe this? How did you guys miss this? And Brad Nelson has been on the record many times saying, yes, we tested it. Yes, we knew about this. We understand. We tested it, and it's fine. Sam Black said, yeah, he was maybe the most concerned about grief because that's the only one that's like really proactive of the cycle but they tested it they thought about this so i just gotta take it with their word like they are aware of this interaction but yeah I, I agree that despite what they concluded in their very limited testing window i think they were just wrong about it like the the way these cards are designed the concept is maybe good but the way that you do it is by combining the evoke mechanic with 
ETB triggers, and that just turns out to be, it has, it has a fatal flaw. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you just keep getting the ETB over and over again, even when you're not evoking. And that's cool when it's like Muldrifters and weak cards, mm -hmm. but it's a lot less cool when it's uh, Pyrokinesis mm -hmm. and Double Thoughtseize and all that. So, I mean, you could even, I'd be okay with eradicating the cards to make that change that you're describing, Lawson. I don't know if they would consider that. And they only get harder as time goes on. Like, that's that's the other awkward part of these things, is like, I don't think any of the people that were designing these cards thought about the fact that, like, white Death and Taxes players now have this card called Samwise, which is a two-mana creature that gets to bring back a permanent that went to the graveyard this turn. Well... You pitch, you play Solitude, you pitch another random white card, you exile your opponent's thing, then you get to Samwise, and oh, look, my Solitude, it died this turn. You know, that the thing that I did when it was in play and then it went to the graveyard, that, that means it died. So I'm actually going to get it back again. Like, no, no matter even if they did the testing, would they know, you know, what's going to happen later down the line? And these effects are only going to get more and more problematic as things, you know, progress. So... Even if they want to say that at the time, the testing, it wasn't a problem and it wasn't going to make any problematic games. I don't 100 percent believe that um, just, you know, because I, I think it's hard to believe that they tested literally everything. I will also say that the other problem that these cards have is not even a balance problem, but just the gameplay patterns are not fun. That's like and I know mm -hmm. that's very subjective, but like you cannot mulligan a hand that does any amount of playing magic against scam you just literally cannot because if they go to scam you on turn one and you mulligan because you know your first hand was four lands three spells and you wanted something a little bit better cool they're scamming you you're dead you know and the the fix to that problem is legitimately like before my opponent gets to take any cards from my hand, I'm going to play this removal spell on their card that is already now card neutral. Like, that that's problematic. So, yeah, I, I just, I, I think that these cards are going to be an issue. They will continue to be an issue. If they don't want to do something about it now, I guess that's fine or whatever, but, like, it doesn't change the fact that at some point... Either they will not be playable at all for modern, which then at that point means that it doesn't matter that it's on the ban list, kind of like Punishing Fire or any of the 20 or so, you know, just like super silly that they're on the ban list cards. But like, you know, we could at least fix the format for now and get to have some fun. And if they got power crept five years from now when MH6 comes out and there's a new absurd thing, like that's fine. Like things change, I guess. But can can we at least have some fun currently? Because the way modern is right now, it's just like kind of abysmal. And that's coming from someone that, you know, I would love to find any reason to play modern. So I agree with you that there should be no surprise to anyone listening to the podcast. But if if you were a betting man, Lawson, which of these scenarios is the most likely? And here I'm talking specifically about the evoke elementals. So four, four options. Option one is they ban the entire cycle, as you're saying. Option two they just ban Fury. That's the third most played card in Modern. Uh, you know, logic being, well, it's clearly the best, and we have to take something away from Recto Scam, so let's take Fury away. Option three would be they errata the cycle. They say you only get the trigger if you cast the card. Uh, or option four, they just don't acknowledge this at all, and they just say nothing about it, and it stays legal forever. I, I think that they are 90% to do nothing. 
And I think they are like 5% to ban Fury and 5% to ban everything. Like, so you don't see Aretta as a, that would just be a bad precedent. It's, it's a bad precedent mostly because um, it's not, it wouldn't be an Aretta to the evoke mechanic. It would be an Aretta mm, to yes. what the cards say, um, you mm. know, and we, we, we don't do that. You know, Elvish Visionary always draws a card when it comes into play. It doesn't say draw a card as long as you are an elf tribal deck. You know, well, I guess if, if I'm following my critique through to its logical conclusion, that would be an acceptable errata to the evoke mechanic. Like all evoke cards would be nerfed. And I think that would be fine. Like there's no reason why Muldritter should be abusable. Um, <laughs> it was fun while it was p- bad, but it's not actually fun when it's good. So the only problem with that, and this is, um, again, me making a deep reach. There are many evoke creatures, Dan, that don't have enter the battlefield triggers, but have leave the battlefield That's triggers. True. So, um, there is no such thing as a perfect crime. Wizards is not mm. consistent. And yet we still do this every week. And by the way, podcast, lol. Um, you know. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So 90% nothing happens on the elementals. Yeah. They, they won't even bring it up. Like wizards will look at the fact that there were 20% of the tournament body was like, this is the deck that I have to play, I guess. And they will go, hey, look, only one of them made the top eight. That means it's not a problem. Like they will they will use this event and in any world. Um, to defend scam and not to indict it because you know they they need to find how they're right and not wrong remember when splitter twin was banned for diversity reasons at 11 percent of the metagame mm-hmm. like this is 19 percent, and it won at 54 percent. but only one top aided so it's fine it was 12 percent of the top eight so it actually underperformed dan you gotta <laughs> Okay. There's uh, what, what is it? There's there's lies, damn lies, and stats. Is that is that the old joke? You know, we we can we can make the oh numbers gosh. say whatever we want. I got an economics degree, Dan. I'm ready. I'm I'm ready to battle you on the number world. You know. <laughs> okay. All right. So you're talking about the one ring. You're talking about cascade being a problem. You're talking about evoke being a problem. Anything else on your radar? What's the issue with modern? Can we even agree on what the problem is? Like, are there other cards you have your eyes on? I mean, I, I think the, the funniest meme is that uh, Urza's Tower did nothing wrong, but uh, mine is the, the problem child. You know, I think I think that would be hilarious if if Wizards was like, <laughs> oh, we're sick and tired of, you know, turn three, seven mana doing well at our premier events every six months. Um, you know, we're going to deal with this Urza's mine thing. Um, you know, I have also seen some people joke that for flavor reasons, you know, they could restrict the one ring to one copy. Um, mm-hmm. That is a nightmare for many reasons. One, it's barely a restriction for decks that play Karn the Great Creator. It's the same reason why we couldn't restrict Luris and Vintage for a while. Cool, you've restricted my card that I play one copy of in a sideboard. You know, whatever. I also just don't think Wizards is interested in explaining to new players. The restricted list means you can play it, but only one of them. You know, I just, I don't think they'll ever do that for real formats again. I agree, although I did see an interesting suggestion on Twitter. The the question was, if you can have a card like Relentless Rats that just says on the card, a deck can contain any number of cards called Relentless Rats. And that's not related to format rules or anything. It just says so on the card. That's part of the game text. Why could you not also have a card that just says in the game text, a deck can only include one copy of this card? And if that's the case, I, I think the discussion 
basically concluded that, yeah, you could theoretically print that card with that game text on it. You could just errata the one ring, give it that text, and then not have to introduce the concept of a restricted list. And I, I love I love this very theoretical this this feels like being in a you know theoretical physics class where it's like, well, we we haven't been able to disprove it. But, you know, it, <laughs> conceptually, I understand it, you know, but just just wizards being like, you know, because because we we bullied wizards, you know, kind of relentlessly for the fact that the companion mechanic nowadays mm-hmm. doesn't work the way it is written on the cards. You know, if if. Jim Bob shows up at his, you know, modern FNM and plays one ring number two. Are we literally calling the flavor judge on him now? Because if if we, you know, rule zero the one ring to one copy in any deck because flavor reasons. That's a little hard to explain to someone, you know, now now does lightning bolt not kill lightning elemental because lightning elemental is made of lightning and a bolt of lightning. I think it pumps it actually like. It, it's gonna get real murky real quick you know <laughs> okay so now now i'm thinking that the bnr update will be encouraging modern players to have rule zero conversations before their matches oh, the no. the format and just for a more enjoyable community experience just to make sure that everyone's getting what they want to out of this shared social game that we all love oh Wow. Okay, that is um that is by far the wildest claim that someone might have ever taken for modern ban list, and therefore it might be true. Um, in roughly <laughs> five days, we might get the Oppenheimer uh, effect. And for any of those that don't know that, go see the movie. I haven't seen it yet. Go see the movie. So, no, no spoilers. I've seen Barbie. So, like, what what is the Barbie effect mm. <laughs> on the BNR list? You are enough. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, so I'm guessing I would just assume it's too soon for action. Unless they really feel like the one ring is an extreme problem, I would expect them to just say nothing. And then in three months, when everyone's complaining, they'll invoke the emergency clause and then we'll realize that the once a year ban list was never going to work. Oh, and they'll just give up on Meaningless? That. <laughs> are you telling me wizards' words are meaningless and that... That they they cannot be held to their own standards is that is that what we're going to claim because uh, I agree. Um. I mean, it was just a weird idea in the first place. The once a year ban. Like, I don't really know why they think this is going to work. I mean, I guess time will tell. But yeah, um, it's a strange idea. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I think I think that is the the best place to kind of leave modern is there are a lot of things going on right now. There is a lot of powerful things you can do. I would probably play the one ring until you can't play it because I think that it will be sooner rather than later that wizard says, ah, this might've been a mistake. You know, maybe, maybe these sets that are, you know, all, all jokes and all that and references and in jokes and, you know, all all of those kind of things, those are set aside for commander players and, you know, vintage and legacy people to suffer with. You know, we, we don't have to deal with initiative and stickers in, actually real formats like modern and pioneer or explorer but you know we can we can make you know the the other people deal with that in their deep dark cavernous corners all right so your prediction is basically no changes, no is changes. That, that's what I'm hearing. yeah i mean i think no no changes no acknowledgement of anything being wrong no look at how perfect their events was there it was in barcelona that's where all the pretty people live how could there be any problems fair enough <laughs> 
Well said. Fair enough. All right, so I think that's it for the modern Pro Tour, <laughs> the modern BNR. I looked on the modern subreddit to see what people were saying, and it's it's mostly just people clamoring for unbans, which sure. I'm not going to get into because the last time that we had that episode like that, uh, it was it was a real shit show. <laughs> I have all the same thoughts. <laughs> yeah, that that's a thing that could happen. Who who knows? But let's talk about something that actually will happen. Last big topic is we have some new cards, Lawson. Mm-hmm. We have about six, seven new cards from Wilds of Eldraine, the next standard legal expansion. Starting with uh, a new creature land cycle, enemy colors. So Restless Fortress taps for white or black, enters the battlefield tapped, activated ability to white black, Restless Fortress becomes a 1 4 white and black nightmare creature to land of turn that's still a land. Whenever Restless Fortress attacks, defending player loses two life and you gain two life. So presumably there'll be a cycle of these. Unclear if they'll be allied enemies or a mix of the two. But this one directly competes with Shambling Event, which does not really see any play. I think it's actually just kind of strictly worse. Um, you know, this one doesn't do a very good job of blocking, which Shambling Event does a great job of. It doesn't really do a much better job of attacking. Yeah, I don't I don't have any other notes. I'm a little sad if we're just getting enemy colored um, man lands again, because, you know, we got that last cycle seven or eight years ago. And we have not got friendly colored man lands since all the way back in original Zendikar block, which has been, you know, almost 15 years now. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that I want a, a modern power level version of Raging Ravine, but I am kind of saying I would like a modern playable version of Raging Ravine. You know, I just, I don't know. I feel like that would be sweet. Uh, Pioneer playable or modern playable? Yeah, for either one. I just want Manlands to matter again. Yeah, the the enemy cycle is legal in Pioneer, but the allied cycle is not. Mm -hmm. So I I would assume we'll get a mix. I would assume we'll get all 10 spread out in kind of a haphazard way over the next few sets. But who knows? Yeah, I don't have high hopes for Restless Fortress. I think in general... The more expensive the activation, the less likely we are to ever play these cards. Next up, Sleight of Hand. First printed in, what, 7th edition? Uh, Last reprinted in ninth edition, I want to say. That's a single blue sorcery. Look at the top two cards of your library. Put one into your hand, the other on the bottom of your library. So this is new to Pioneer. It's not new to Modern. Yeah. I'm kind of whatever on it, um, not to not to flex my knowledge of uh, arcane magic things. Um, Sleight of Hand uh, originally is from Portal, actually. Oh. It was their kind of down, downgraded <laughs> version of Brainstorm to try and let new players know what it's like to have card replacement stuff that wasn't overly complicated. It's cool that we're getting a reprint of it. I kind of wish it was just a not sleight of hand. I wish it was like basically this exact effect, but put the other card in your graveyard. I think that would have it see some amount of constructed play. I don't think it would really push it. I, I don't think that having, you know, look at two, put one in your graveyard, one in your hand. I don't think that card is actually any better, really, than instant speed surveil one draw card. I think those two things are like pretty similar, but, um, you know, mm. 
whatever. It, it's cool. I'm I'm happy that I'm going to get to play cards from Portal in standard. I think it's always cool to, you know, have old reprints come back in new formats. So cool. Yeah, the fact that sleight of hand has been legal in modern means that we've kind of already answered the question of how does it stack up to other options. It's worse than opt, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worse than serum visions, which has already been pushed out by opt and consider. So it's definitely not going to displace uh, opt or consider in pioneer. I can't think of any cards that specifically care about having sorceries. And sorcery is just a big downside. So the only impact i could imagine is if you if you really want to play 12 cantrips in your phoenix deck you you could put these in and trim some charter course or something trim a land it technically is a little bit of an upgrade for um uh, lotus field because lotus field doesn't really care about playing at your opponent's end of turn doesn't really care about graveyard stuff so being able to look at both cards is slightly better than um consider but Again, that's like very much splitting hairs. I, I think it is nice to have cards like this so that people have the options of it. But I, I think that we are more likely to forget about sleight of hand than be like, oh, man, what a great addition. You know, I, I just feel like it kind of falls in that range of cool, whatever, like, you know. Yeah. Next up, we have a card that people have been asking me about <laughs> as a self-proclaimed crab vine expert, quote unquote. <laughs> The people have demanded that I weigh in on the Cruel Somnophage, so let, let me give my take on Cruel Somnophage, which is unfortunately a cruel joke for us Crabvine players. Adventures are back, and now they are multicolored. So this is a black creature, one and a black, Nightmare, Star Star. Cruel Somnophage's power and toughness are each equal to the number of creature cards in all graveyards. So we've seen variants of this, but this one counts all graveyards, and its base stats are 0-0. Zero, zero. Um, I'll come back to that. Then the adventure mode, can't wake up, sorcery, adventure, one in a blue, target player mills four cards. This is a real bummer to me, Lawson. Like, they could have they could have tweaked any number of these knobs to just make it slightly more playable. And I'm not just talking about for modern Crabvine, I'm talking about for a pioneer dredge-style deck, which does not currently exist. What could they have tweaked? Well, they, they could have made this an instant, the can't wake up. Like, this is, as it's printed, is just... The exact same card as Merfolk Secret Keeper, but at double the mana. We didn't like Secret Keeper to begin with. <laughs> That's like the weakest card in the deck. Um, I def- definitely don't want to play two for that effect. If I could hold up my mana, like hold up Otherworldly Gaze and Can't Wake Up at the same time, I, w- I would maybe consider it. But just like doing this on turn two, expending two mana to mill four is not a good turn. So that's not a reason to put Cruel Somnophage into your deck. On the other hand maybe the creature side is good, right? Maybe you can talk yourself into, yeah, I have a new angle of attack. I can play my turn one Hedron Crab. I play my turn two Somnophage and just I'm off to the races with a big beater. This is some of what Dak Faden likes about the green version, Urborg Lurgoyf. And that, that kind of works, but the Urborg Lurgoyf has a toughness and Cruel Somnophage does not. And that's just like the world of difference. That makes such a huge difference when the most common thing to happen when you're playing graveyard deck is that they're going to take out your graveyard several times during the course of the sideboarded games. And you just can't have a card like this that just dies when endurance happens or when Relic of Progenitus Relic is popped. The Lurgoyf at least sticks around. The Somnophage is just gone. It does die and then there's a creature in your graveyard so you can then play another one and it's a... Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, no. Um, 
everything you said. I love the design space. I'm actually very, very excited that we are going to get, you know, color X adventure Y cards. I think that is like a really interesting design space. I like the fact that they are being careful, at least, you know, not having all of these be super insane. Um, this is a card that I am kind of interested in playing in some kind of pioneer power level decks of it's kind of downside of being a three, three or four, four is fine or whatever. You know, I'm, this is not a kind of deck that I usually lean towards, but, um, you know, I am, I am happy to see this card, but I don't think it's overly powerful at all. So it gets a lot more interesting if the opponent has creatures in their graveyard, like if it's actually just a big beater with that you can occasionally adventure to get even bigger then sure why not but as a proactive card that the self mill deck will actively just try to play four of i'm not optimistic and it's it's just because they could have just made the adventure cost one mm-hmm. they would not break the card mm-hmm. at all yeah that's a miss i mean on the one hand i'm like oh i'm happy to see the theme is here maybe that means we get more cards for this archetype but on the other hand like this is the rare yeah. like this is the good version of this effect i'm I'm afraid that they're just going to nerf all of this. Yeah. We'll see. I, I do think it would be sweet if it was like the adventure cost one mana and then the creature itself costs three. I think that's like, you know, now it costs four still to yeah. do this whole thing. Um, And you're, you know, you're only playing it when it matters. But again, like we can't really play this card on turn two. If you play it on turn two and there are no creatures in the graveyard, it just dies. So, you know, it is um it, it is a little, you know, uninspired to say the least. All right, Lawson, what do you make of this next one here? Tough Cookie. I love the Tough Cookie. Um, So this is our second in the gingerbread line. (laughs) But uh, green and one for a 2-2 artifact creature food golem. When the Tough Cookie enters the battlefield, you create a food token. Uh, And then for two and a green, you can have target non-creature artifact you control, become a 4-4 until end of turn, and you can also pay 2 and tap this to sacrifice Tough Cookie, and you gain 3 life, so it does work exactly like a food. This card is fantastic. This card is, like, very, very powerful. One, it is 2 artifacts for 2 mana, so Mm. um, it is 2 rectangles. It is also 2 food, so... Uh, I, I do see this card in limited and standard being kind of a brutal thing to ever try to race. And if the game is grindy, getting to spend two in a green to make a, let's say, a food, um, a 4-4, does matter. So th- this card is just like, if you have mana and you can do stuff, um, it will do things. But for modern and pioneer playability, I, I think this might fall a little short, but it is um, definitely a cool card and is definitely pushing the design space. So. How will I know if it's doing enough for me to see play? Like, this seems way better than all previous versions of foods or two drops that bring extra artifacts. Like, it, it seems to be best in class in all these different buckets, but it's still just a 2-2 that brings a food. I think that decks that might be kind of interested in this are, like, affinity decks that are interested mm. in Thought Monitor and whatever the blue-white one is that lets you cascade. Because those decks often just want a mass number of artifacts and also mm-hmm. do end up with extra mana. So that is that is the kind of deck that I see this card kind of being designed for. I don't think this will quite hit that mark. But I think that is kind of where you might want to look. So, 
Yeah, I mean, we liked the card Blood Fountain just as a really cheap way to make two artifacts. Uh, this is another version of that that's like a little more useful. Food, while not very good, certainly worse than Blood, is more synergistic than Blood. Mm -hmm. Feed it to your Gilded Goose. You can play this after playing Asmo on turn one and fling <laughs> gingerbreads at something. That reminds me, when this card was printed, like, Mord was just losing his mind. Apparently there's a really, really delicious pun in Spanish. The, the Spanish translation is reparte tortas. And apparently uh, tortas means Tasty turtle? both cake and punch. Mm. So it's like the cake deliverer, but also the punch deliverer. So I'm sure I'm butchering this. He'll have to explain it next time he's on. <laughs> but... A card that's very much appreciated by whoever did the, the Spanish translation of Tough Cookie. All right, next up is a card that I've heard really mixed things on. Some people think this is very powerful, and I'm pretty confused by it, so I'm hoping you can help me out, Lawson. I'm talking about Talion the Kindly Lord. Two blue-black, legendary fairy noble, three-four flying, so decent stats. As Talion, the Kindly Lord, enters the battlefield, choose a number between 1 and 10. Whenever an opponent casts a spell with mana value, power, or toughness equal to the chosen number, that player loses 2 life and you draw a card. So we've never actually seen this template before. Every spell your opponent casts, you check its mana value and its power and its toughness. And then if it's equal to the number you set... It's a Punisher effect. You draw a card, they lose two life. Yeah. So it is a card that is very hard to value because it, it does need to trigger and it only triggers when your opponent does stuff, in this case, casting spells, and it only triggers when they name or play specific spells. So I think the best way to think about this card is it is... Um, it is going to play a lot like a Magus uh, or not Magus um, meddling mage kind of effect where when you play it, you have a card in mind that you're thinking of. So I think a pretty normal name for this will be three because it hits mm. both fury and solitude um, or you could name two and you know just kind of depending on the matchup, you know what you're going to be seeing from your opponent I will say that largely one of the problems of this card is there is not a single um, mana cost that is reliable for everything. So, like, let's say you're playing against Black Red um, Scam and you play this card. You might want to name three because it hits um, Fury, but it does not hit Terminate. And a lot of the Scam decks are playing a couple Terminates, so they're going to still be able to kill your guy. Or, oh, maybe I want to name one because now I can stop Fatal Push. But unless you know what your opponent's hand is exactly in that moment, it will be hard to kind of lock them out of those things. And this doesn't lock them out from playing those cards. It just means that they're going to lose two points of life and you're going to draw a card, which, you know, is much less impactful. So I don't think this card will see actually any amount of constructed play. Um, just like if, if you told me I had a four mana, three, four that, you know, uh, every turn my opponent lost two life and I drew a card, 
Um, I would be excited about that, but I would just be like, I think you don't understand how Shieldred works. You know, like, I I think we have cards like this that already exist that are just not good enough consistently for every format. So, cool design. Super interesting. Not quite there. So you're saying that it fails the test of even if you got it every turn. Yeah. One of the big traps of Punishers is that we get so wrapped up in figuring out if they're going to meet the condition that we forget that the best case scenario is often just not good enough. Yeah. Right. You know, if it, if it does hit every turn, we are like very close to doing something insane because we are drawing an additional card. But by the way, if you want to spend four mana and make sure you draw additional cards every turn, you can just play the one ring, dude. You just don't even, you don't, you don't have to figure out what your opponent's playing. Like there's, <laughs> it, it, it is kind of arbitrary at this point. So the way I see it currently, I don't think this card has really got any legs to stand on. Also, just like for Pioneer's sake, I can't imagine playing a blue-black deck that has a creature it wants to cast. Like, that is just like such a kind of weird space to be and kind of the, the zeitgeist of the format. Yeah, that is, yeah, I, I just don't think it has a home. David said he was intrigued, but he didn't really explain why, so I'll let him make his case whenever he's back. I think I'm intrigued by his intrigation. <laughs> for Pioneer specifically, not, not for Modern. All right, uh, we have a Planeswalker, perhaps the only Planeswalker, and thank goodness for this change. Uh, Mark Rosewater seems to have confirmed that they're really the Planeswalkers were, were a mistake, which is something that David's been saying since the beginning. They're just not that interesting. The design space is kind of a mess. They're getting better at designing ones that are not broken, but that also just means they're not that good. So Wizards yes. are letting themselves off the hook by saying we're only going to do one per set from now on. For lower reasons, allegedly, but it's that's not why. Right? They're just they're just not good for magic. Um well I do like the one that they printed um in this case. I will say it's sweet. Uh, it's Ashiok Wicked Manipulator. It's three black black uh, for a five mana uh, or for a five loyalty Planeswalker Ashiok. Um, it has the uh, forever uh, effect of if you would pay life while your library has at least that many cards in it, exile that many cards from the top of your library instead. Plus one, you get to look at the top two cards of your library, exile one of them, and put the other one in your hand. Uh, you can minus two, uh, create two one one black nightmare creature tokens with at the beginning of combat on your turn. If a card was put into your exile this turn, you get to put a plus one plus one counter on this creature. And then uh, lastly, minus seven target player exiles the top X card of their library, where X is the total menu mana value of cards you own in exile. There is a lot of words on this card. Let me just explain it to those layman's out there that just want to understand how this card's going to play out. Most of the time with Ashiok, you're probably going to minus two it, make some one ones. If your Ashiok doesn't die, you're going to get to sleight of hand every single turn. And your uh, creatures that you just made are going to go from one ones to two twos to then three threes to then four fours. And it will get better and better as the game proceeds. If you ever get to ultimate this Ashiok, um, the ultimate will either not have any text and will just make some more one ones or it will literally end the game and there will not be any other. Um, you know, thing that this does, you know, um, that's just kind of the way that mill effects work. They either end the game or they don't. And there's not really any middle ground there. Dan, I, I want to get your input on this card. 
What is your gut reaction when you first see this magic card? Honestly, I didn't even make it past the static text. I believe you when you're saying the common play pattern is pay five, play Ashiok minus two for tokens, but I just can't imagine anyone putting the card in their deck for that reason. I feel like the only reason to even consider Ashiok for a constructed deck is because you have some weird combo in mind with a static text. I just, I don't think that five mana planeswalkers that make tokens are good enough and that draw cards are good enough. I don't know if you feel differently. Um, so I don't hate that it, I do like the value engine side of it. I mean, I too, um, I do think that there is room for, um, specifically in Pioneer for there to be, you know, four and five mana kind of grindy cards. That being said, I do think that that format might need, um, a, uh, you know, uh, someone to oversee the format, make some uh, changes to what is legal for those things to be, you know, really competitive. The thing that I am kind of interested, though, is this top line um, is pretty abusable. There are some effects that do have you pay life um, that I would be kind of excited about playing. In specifically that there is a two card combo that does just end, end the game. Well, that's what I find so intriguing, but also frustrating about Ashiok is that this is the first time we've seen this text. It's a unique effect in the history of the game. And they're playing it super safe by putting it on the most fragile of fragile types, the five mana planeswalker. It's, if, you, if you build your deck around this, you're going to be disappointed. Because <laughs> even when you do the thing, you still have to play five for your Ashiok, and it's just going to get spell pierced, or it's just not going to be a very good card. Mm-hmm. I don't think that this static text is that dangerous. I think it's cool. Like I'm, I'm interested to hear what this combo is, Lawson, because I, I think that if I imagine having access to this effect instead of paying life, exiling cards from my library. That's such a cool space, and I just wish they'd give us that on a cheaper card. Mm-hmm. So what, what combos are you imagining? So the one that I do think is a little interesting is specifically how Ashiok plays with Staff of Completion. Um, mm. Staff of Completion came out in the Brothers War, and it's a three-mana artifact. It has five different activated abilities, the first one is tap, pay one life, destroy target permanent you own. I don't want to do that one. It's got tap, pay two life, add one mana of any color. Um, it's got tap, pay three life, proliferate, tap, pay four life, draw card, and five mana, untap staff. I think the most interesting one is the fact that you can go turn three staff, turn four, tap the staff to add a color of mana, play the Ashiok. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, it's pretty easy for you to, um, uh, on the next turn, if you want to, um, start making guys and making extra mana the moment that the Staff of Completion uh, doesn't have that pay life clause. Tap, exile four cards from the top of your library, draw a card is like something that I'm kind of interested in. And once we're getting grindy, having pay three life proliferate, if I look at my exile pile and I see that we have, you know, 20 25 30 you know combined mana value like i'm going to be interested in potentially all right at the end of your turn pay three life but really just exile three cards to proliferate uh my turn do that again i'll pay five to untap the staff i'll proliferate again like it's it's pretty easy to have the staff jump the ashiok to ultimate range kind of out of nowhere and then just mill your opponent out so 
Hmm. That I think is cute. That's interesting because David was thinking, oh, that the staff of completion, maybe that's the combo. And when I looked at it, there there isn't actually a combo because the staff of completion requires mana to untap. So mm-hmm. you can't just do it over and over again. Um, so that's not going to go infinite, but I hadn't really considered how the ultimate becomes actually a real possibility with staff. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's maybe that's good enough. Although I, I do feel like you're combining combining two largely unplayable cards and hoping that they somehow win mm-hmm. on turn seven, which seems unlikely to me. The other way to like really go hard on this is to pick a card that lets you pay life repeatedly. Adanto Vanguard. Unctus, Grand Metatech, just anything that has a Phyrexian activation that's repeatable. Doom Whisperer, you talked about that. So now you have the option to just get rid of your library, but I I don't know if that actually helps you or not. Like, none of those cards actually let you find Thassa's Oracle. People thought maybe Doom Whisperer could do it, but you, you actually can't because you're going to exile the Thassa's Oracle in the course of activating the Surveil over and over again. So it's not really... There's no scenario in which I could imagine slamming my Ashiok on turn five completes the combo and wins that turn. It would have to have like exactly four mana Jason play already, plus, you know, your whatever else, your Unctus. Unctus turn three, Jace turn four, Ashiok turn five. Um, that's just like a very unlikely scenario, but that would technically win the game. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's an interesting set of text, but I don't think it's actually powerful. I think one kind of cute one when you're looking at kind of how that interaction works. Spellskite is really cool that it um, it does let you do that effect and also is a card that protects against other stuff. Now, it is a little awkward that in this case, Spellskite is one of your combo pieces. And, you know, <laughs> changing the text of something to kill your Spellskite is not what we want to do if Spellskite is the combo piece, which is, you know, a little deflating. But any time that you can turn that um, kind of effect into no longer a negative, you can also activate Hex Parasite as many times as possible. Um, mm. it, it lets you do some weird things where you can. Um, there is currently a problem where if your life total can't change, you can't activate Fetchlands. Coming from someone who has played a lot of Madcap Experiment into Platinum Imperion. Um, Ashiok <laughs> does actually let you use your fetch lands again because you're um, no longer having to change your life. It's a, a replacement effect on a replacement effect, which is not nothing. I'm assuming I'm probably not going to play Ashiok anytime soon in a madcap experiment deck. But, you know, I, I do think it is kind of important to at least have those things um, noted away for, you know, future trivia nights. Yeah, they're they're interesting interactions. They're fun to think about. I just wish they weren't attached to a five mana planeswalker. That's not very good. Like I think we'll just never see this card ever in play. The five mana planeswalker. The, sorry, <laughs> the five mana. Like they're eroding planeswalkers. Only one per set. They can eroded the one ring. If they can do this to planeswalkers, they can do this to the one ring. And finally, last card, Moonshaker Cavalry. It's a white creator of behemoth. They honestly just pre- presented it this way in the preview stream like hey it's creator hoof but in white also it doesn't have haste yeah so it's not as good it's just worse it's just worse but commander players like it so nothing to see here for constructed i think i'm upset i'm <laughs> upset because i something that i do like is whenever they do color shift stuff because you know there are there are those of us wizards who still believe in the color pie and that not every deck is just going to be five color nonsense. 
And I was kind of excited about having some random eight mana white thing that just ends the game. I am a Shining Shoal person at heart, so I saw eight mana white card. How can I, you know, convince myself this is playable? It's not. Um, so I can't even, you know, accidentally register this card. So <sighs> as you were, you know, it's kind of kind of how it feels. It just. I-, I wish it gave lifelink. I wish it gave haste. I wish it. Flying is cool. I mean, it probably ends the game, but like, ugh. I mean, in, in Commander, it ends the game, which is wanted to do more. The point, the point of the card, but yeah, I, I don't see anything here for for us. But yeah, that's it. That's all we've seen from Wilds of Eldraine. Of course, as I'm saying this, it is August second, and we know that on August fifth, a bunch of cards are going to be previewed at the Gen Con thirtieth anniversary. Uh, hoedown or whatever it is so uh, we'll be back again next week to dig into all that and <laughs> unpack the bnr announcement in which finally something is restricted the one ring is restricted that's why they call it bandit restricted lawson it's been there hiding in plain sight the entire time wow <laughs> wow wait you're right you're right man what's going to happen when there's just no update when remember when pioneer first came out and every monday we were we were all refreshing and at 11.01, there wasn't an update. And we were like, are they are they still off to lunch or or are there no changes in the format? Like, how long are we waiting on Monday for, a, you know, report card to come out saying, hey, by the way, everything's perfect. We promise we check the stats. If they ban the one ring in modern, poor Post Malone, his investments in the <laughs> modern collection will be just decimated, <laughs> you know? <laughs> be so upset that he paid 2.6 million for an unplayable card. Oh, Posty. <sighs> oh, Posty. Oh, Posty. Big fans, Posty, if you're listening to the podcast right now. No no hate. All love. The ball's in your court, ring bearer. <laughs> what you gonna do? What are you gonna do? <laughs> Don't tempt him, man. I'm trying to get tickets. <laughs> All right, so I think those are the big topics of the week. Lawson, anything else on your mind? Anything else coming up on your horizons? Um, I am playing in the uh, sealed deck tournament that is going to be Eldrain. So if anyone else is a degenerate and going to be in Las Vegas, not at the craps table, uh, I will be playing Magic there. I am always happy to you know complain about Magic live and in person. Um, other than that, I've just been jamming a bunch of limited still top 250 um, for the fourth month in a row for myself. So um, oh I have gosh. to learn some Explorer now. Dan, if I were to tell you that every single card in Pioneer Green was legal on Arena except for uh, two cards, would would that scare you or make you excited to possibly play that deck? Well, it's Nykthos, right? And Othanissa, those are the two? Ooh, no, we've been given Nykthos recently through one of the Explorer anthologies, one of those weird things that Wizards does that is strange and odd. But uh, no, we currently do not have Oath of Nyssa, which is kind of a deflating thing. Uh, we also don't have the Chain Veil, so we can't do the combo. So we just have to accept the fact that we're just... Mm. I would like to put 30 uh, mana value of cards into play, and I'll kill you next turn. Is that okay, opponent? Hmm. Yeah. So you're on Mono Green for Explorer. That or Spirits. I don't know. I'm going to listen to people who are smarter than me, and hopefully I will win three or four matches, make a couple thousand gems, and 
get back to playing limited. So but th- <laughs> those are the, the uh, stakes that I set on these events every month. Well, I'm excited for the limited Grand Prix, if we're going to call it that. Uh, I don't know what the official name is, but we'll we'll get you to do some on-the-ground live coverage there. And, you know, I'd love to see Paper Magic continue to make a comeback. And if these events are going to be a part of that, even at 250 bucks a pop or whatever it costs, what, what is the entry fee? 180 oh, plus the badge? I have not checked that. That is, uh, I have I have booked my plane ticket, so I am, I am committed um, I have not looked into what all of the expenses are going to cost. Um, yeah, don't. <laughs> it's a bit lost in it's, it's it's a little bit. Hey, hey, I'm committed already. Okay, it's fine. It's fine. The numbers only add money. up if you add them up. That's the secret, you know. <laughs> okay. Otherwise, they're just swiping the card. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I wish you all the best at that, and we'll be watching the news wire closely for any updates in the next week. We'll see if these predictions pay out. Perfect. Thanks as always. And uh, if you ever need me, just give me a call, okay? Yeah, absolutely. You can always find Lawson. You're on Twitter, is that right? You're on Discord. Yep, I'm everywhere that uh, you know notifications for the um, uh, podcast go out. Sorry, you're on X. My mistake. Oh, don't say <laughs> you can that. Find Lawson on X on Discord. He's in the Faith is Brewing Discord as well, often streaming. So. Lawson's always down to talk magic and we'd love to have you on. So thanks again for coming by and best of luck in your next tournaments. Always. See y'all soon. Take care. Deck lists for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in next time for all of the latest news and the sickest brews. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Call it X on purpose.